Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I recall a story a couple of years ago, maybe more than a couple of years ago, I can't remember exactly when, but not that far back, when there was a guy, a very, uh, what's the word? Well, a guy who decided that he was going to spice up his life a little bit. So what he did is he arranged with a casino down in Vegas that he would wager every single thing he owned right down to the last dime, literally everything of every one of his earthly possessions on one spin of a roulette wheel. He put it all on red. Turns out he won. Turned out to be an okay bet, but it could have gone the other way. I've also seen, as you have, the TV show or a version of the TV show Storage Wars. You've seen this, right? Where people, they they go to an auction for a sealed storage locker. No idea what's behind the door. They bid on it. They bid on it. Somebody wins it. And then sometimes they hit the jackpot and sometimes it's a complete disaster. Well, there's the third story. We've heard of the folks one way or another who in their life have decided to try and simplify things. They've moved into a tiny house. They've sold a bunch of stuff. They've downsized. They've become more frugal, more simple, whatever else. Well, there are three stories right there, three scenarios. If you mix them all together, you will get my first guest today. He is selling everything that he owns in an auction, a silent auction. Bids begin at $200,000 in an effort to simplify his life. His name is Michael Bowden. He comes to us from Nova Scotia. Michael, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you this evening? I uh, Listen, I'm doing great. I'm fascinated by your story, though, because I heard this today. I think it's been uh, talked about for a few days. I saw it today. What do I get? If I decide to put down a bid on Michael Bowden's earthly possessions, and I know you're not going to tell me everything because part of it's a secret, but generally, in the broader scope, what am I bidding on for $200,000 at least? Well, for $200,000, what you are bidding on is you're bidding on my five-bedroom, two-bath home, all of the contents, my two cars, one of which is a 2013 Hyundai Elantra, the other is a 2007 uh, Kia Sportage. Um, there is also a baby burn that goes with the property as well. That is 12 by 10. Um, there's all kinds in here. Now, by no means am I a hoarder or anything, but there's <laughs> lots of fascinating uh, little trinkets and stuff for my travels around the world, some antiques, some medals. Uh, I like to collect grandfather clocks, so... There's are some ideas that are in the house without giving away too much. And I mean, I suppose that people have probably asked this already. The house is standing. It's not about to collapse. The cars actually run all that kind of stuff. You've had these questions, right? I have. Yes. Um, both cars actually run. Uh, they are safety inspected for another two years. Uh, all of the maintenance is done up on the cars. Uh, the house is not ready to fall down. It is well maintained, <laughs> so and very livable. So why do this then? Because it's a, it's a really creative idea. It certainly has gotten a lot of attention. What's the what's the impetus behind why you've decided to do this? Well, um, as I've explained to um, different people, is that at this juncture of my life, um, since my father has passed and we've now buried his ashes. Um, I no longer have someone to take care of. I no longer have that bound to the house or anything along those lines. So I can go back to start living my life. Now, of course, my cat's not included in this, so she's the one bound I do have. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But my house is just way too big for one person. 
You know, I am one person living in a five-bedroom home, and I go downstairs once a week to do the laundry. I think it would be better served if a family was living here so they could grow into it or fill it completely, dependent on how big the family is, and start making their own memories and, you know, um, future. But the uh, and uh, that makes a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. The average person, though, Michael, would say, well, then let me put my house up for sale with a real estate agent, not do an auction to see what I could get with all the possessions. Where did the idea come from? How did it hit you that I'm going to do this instead? And where that idea originally came from is I read an article about a gentleman um, who I do believe was from Australia, sold his life on eBay. He sold it for just over 200000 I don't know if it was Australian dollars or pounds. And he ended up moving to a deserted island and appears to be living very happily as far as what I've read recently. Uh, but that's not my plan. I don't plan on moving to a deserted island. Or <laughs> crazy. Um, it's just time to get rid of all of this stuff, which is just that stuff, um, and start over. Start living a little more simply. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Michael Bowden from Nova Scotia, who you may have heard about, you may have read about. He is putting his entire collection of earthly belongings, everything he owns except for his cat, will be up for auction. Bids start at $200,000, his house, his cars, his belongings, everything. And Michael, you know, even over the commercial break, and as you were just saying about the deserted island, which I know you're not doing, there is something. Now, I don't know that I could ever do something like this, but there is something about this concept that really does sound strangely freeing to have basically nothing. You're just, you can walk away and do whatever. It, it kind of does sound very freeing. It does seem very freeing, and that's kind of, you know, my mindset. I certainly hope that will be the case. Um, you know, luckily... My sister has been gracious enough to offer me to stay with her if this uh, actually pans out so that I can figure out what my next moves will be. Is there anything, though, because even when it's freeing, you know, there are things that we get over the course of our life. You talked about trinkets from travel and things. Are there some things that you would say, yeah, I'd kind of like to keep that? I mean, you're keeping your cat, but are there other things that it's going to be really hard to get rid of? Honestly, no. There's nothing in the house that will be difficult to get rid of. Um, we had sat down as a family and we had discussed it. And we all kind of came to the same conclusion that stuff is just stuff. And we contain or we hold the memories in our hearts and in our minds. And all the rest of it is dust collectors, you know. Um, You're the opposite of a hoarder. Yes, exactly. You I don't are. want to get rid of it all. You should. I. You. I mean, I don't know what you do for a career, but you should actually be providing counseling to hoarders because that's the number one, I think, reason that they hold on to stuff is because they can't see exactly what you just said that the memories are in your head, not in the item. Exactly. They they truly are, um, and they can sometimes take away or distract you from the things that are around you, like the people and stuff like that, that should be focused on and what's making you happy or what could be making you happy. And throughout this entire thing, that's what I really want the message to be is for people to step back, take a look at their lives, find out what makes them happy. It doesn't have to be a major change like what I'm doing. It could be something small, you know, um, spending more time with their kids or um, going out and sitting on the deck and having coffee in the morning you know, or 
it could be you want to get rid of everything too. Um, <laughs> whatever's going to work for you. Well, you've you've done this with a model that you've t- talked to people about, which is live simply so others can simply live. That model, when I read that, and maybe I'm misreading it, but that model, the live simply part, I completely understand, but so others can simply live. Is there something involved in this that is a charitable thing as well, or is this, or is there some other different meaning to that that you take? Well, where that all stems from is in the past, I spent a couple of years volunteering full time with the Marianist Voluntary Service Communities, and that was their motto. Um, as we worked with the homeless, we lived simply so others can simply live. And it brought us to a point where you learn to look at things, whether it's a need or whether it's a want. Um, and can you do something better with your life to make somebody else's life better? That's basically from what I take of it, the simple premise of it. One of the things that I that struck me about this when I first heard this story is now I don't know and I'll ask you in a minute when the auction ends, but between now and then, uh, you're in a weird position, I guess, because most of us go through life with the possibility that we may actually buy something along the way. Uh, it would actually serve absolutely no purpose between now and when it ends for you to purchase anything. Is that a weird thing to just not be ever spending any money except for I guess the very bare essential, bare essentials? Not really. Like I said, the, the house has everything in it. And I've, for a lot of time, done, is this something I need? Is this something I want? Um, I mean, if, say, my fridge were to break down, I'd go and I'd buy another one. Um, or Hopefully not an expensive one if you're putting it in the auction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I would actually buy one that would be up to par. You know, it wouldn't be something that I'd go and just spend 50 bucks on i want you know if somebody is going to spend that amount of money i want them to have something decent to come in and not really have to worry about so are you you're obviously banking on the fact that there are some gamblers out there because it's a bit of a mystery of what they're going to get are you a gambler and i don't mean in the casino if if you had ever come across something like this before you had your moment of clarity here that you've come to would you have ever been tempted to try something like this to, to gamble the money and see what you would get Probably. Um, I would have taken that risk. I've taken various risks throughout my life. Um, I don't allow fear to dictate what um, what I do in my life. Like I had a fear of heights and I went skydiving and bungee jumping. There's taking a risk with your life, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I probably would have tried to take a leap of faith myself. Maybe not quite for the amount that I'm asking, but for a lesser amount more than likely. Any bids yet? There have been no official bids yet. However, there are three parties that are seriously interested, and we are currently in discussions there, um, going back and forth. And knock on wood, one of them will pan out. And you yeah. must have, though, lots of people, Michael, driving back and forth on the street now to actually see if this house is for real. Um, very possibly. You know, I haven't had anybody <laughs> stop or, you know, any looky loos or anything like that yet, but I'm sure it might come. Uh, Michael Bowden, by the way, if people were interested in making a bid or looking at it, where can they find information online? Is there just an email address? Is there a website? Where can they find some information? So on Facebook, there is the event that is um, Live Simply, so others can simply live sale. Um, That's there. 
you can send the email to live simply so others can simply live 2018 at hotmail.com um if you go to a lot of the interviews that i've done they've placed links um on there to the live video you can also feel free to facebook message me however you think you can get a hold of me to make a bid try it whether it's carrier pigeon or not i will take all bids by any method possible and when does it end it ends on September 16th at 9 p.m. Atlantic Time. We will be uh, providing an update here after you do that. Michael, it's great of you to join us, and it's a great idea, and I'm, I'm interested. I'm going to be really interested to see where this thing goes. Appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, and uh, maybe make a bid. Uh, well, you know what? We'll see if we want to round up some listeners. I don't know if I'm independently wealthy enough to do it, but uh, who knows? <laughs> who knows? We'll see. Maybe, maybe Lisa behind the glass here. Michael, thanks for the time. Maybe Lisa behind the glass will decide she wants to go in. You know, the operators here make that kind of money. The on-air people don't so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, we were chatting about the removal of the statue of Sir Johnny MacDonald from the steps of the City Hall in Victoria, B.C. Remember, we had this discussion, I'm sure, as I say, I'm sure you caught this one place or another. This country's first prime minister may have been a key figure in the creation of Canada, but his part in the residential school system has and did make him intolerable for some. What happened to many Indigenous people in that system made him a man with too much negative baggage to keep on display, was the thinking, and therefore he must be taken down. Well, he's not the only famous person, as you know, politician or otherwise, general, whatever, to have statues removed or names washed from buildings or streets or parks or whatever, and not just in Canada, in the States as well. We've heard lots about Civil War folks and others down in the States. But it got me thinking, what if the person who had the statue, who was up for discussion, who did potentially did some bad things once upon a time that today make us very uncomfortable, wasn't what you would expect, wasn't in the typical group, the typical people group that you would say, yeah, that's a person that we would expect that perhaps from. Would we be quick to wash them away too? And if not, or if so, does this add any nuance or should it add some nuance to the discussion about who we should be taking down or how we should be discussing this. Jane Malkovich is a lawyer here in town. She is a historian. She is also an author who has written about Joseph Brandt and a woman named Sophia Pooley. It's a very interesting story. I wanted to have Jane on to talk about it today. She joins me now. Jane, thanks for doing this. Well, you're quite welcome. I'm happy to be here. Before we get into what specifically we want to talk about, there are some people who may not, they probably heard the name. Most people I think have heard the name Joseph Brandt, even if it's from just the hospital. Who was Joseph Brandt? Why is he an important figure? Joseph Brandt was a Mohawk man, and uh, the Mohawks were part of the Six Nations or the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois who came to Canada or what is now Canada around the time of the Revolutionary War in the state. So they fought on the side of the British crown and came basically as loyalists. And so Joseph Brandt was the Mohawk war chief who led his people uh, into war to basically help make Canada what it is today on, on, uh, in solidarity or in loyalty to the British crown. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm historically wrong here, but my understanding is one of the things that made him unique is he was both accepted and, um, I don't know if revered is the right word, but both by the Indigenous people and by the English or the white people. He, he could work on both sides and be equally respected. He certainly straddled both worlds. 
he was uh, schooled in the English system. He, he traveled to England. He was raised partly in the home of William Johnson, who was a, a white man, a slave owner, an Indian agent down in New York State in, in Mohawk Territory. So uh, he w- he could move culturally with ease and speak the English language with, with the English people, but also with, with the Mohawk people. And he also was a negotiator and a representative of the local Anishinaabe or Ojibwe people. So he moved in different worlds and in different ways and was very much a cross-cultural figure. And and we see evidence that clearly he was seen as one of the good guys. I assume that's the, the conclusion we're going to draw because there's a hospital, as I say, named after him in Burlington. There's a museum, the Joseph Brandt Museum. There's a city just up the road. Brantford is named Joseph Brandt. Put it together. Uh, Brandt County. It's in Brandt County. There's a statue of him in the downtown main square in Brantford. Uh, he again. I, I don't know that revered is too strong a word. He is a man who was very highly thought of, and many of these things were done to show that. Yes, I mean he's he's also a, a complex figure, and, and we're going to get into his legacy without stealing your thunder about owning slaves. But one of the things that he's critiqued about within the indigenous community is that his legacy in terms of property rights, that uh, his motivation at the time was to provide for his people, but in order to do that, when they were given land grants by the Crown in Canada, he then subletted or sold or gave away some of that land. And the rationale at the time was to have some income for his people, but it's become somewhat of a complicated legacy because some people sort of say tongue-in-cheek that he was the Mohawks or the Six Nations' first real estate agent and okay. giving or selling the land away. So so there's there's many complicated parts of his legacy. But uh, Exactly. And this is, this is what I want to get to now, because one of the people that you have written about, and you've written uh, a lot about, is a woman by the name of Sophia Pooley. Now, we know Joseph Brandt's name. Most people don't know her name. How does she factor into this story? Well, it's a fascinating story, and, and I agree with you that I was first interested in it because uh, she was a, a slave, a black woman who was owned and, and was in slavery, in slavery in Canada. And she was brought to Canada by Joseph Brandt because he was, uh, at that time, uh, 1778 is the year that we think that she was sold to Joseph Brandt. She had been captured where she was down in uh, New York State, uh, and sold into slavery to Joseph Brandt at Niagara at the border in 1778 and brought up into the Grand River and the Burlington-Hamilton area and, and lived here. And as we know, the first white settlers in Hamilton were 1784, and she was here in 1778, so probably six years before even white settlers were here. So very early, and in fact... The reason we know her story at all is that in 1856, a man named Benjamin Drew went around interviewing fugitive slaves and former slaves and published those interviews, and she was one of them. She was talked to when she was in her 90s in 1856, and so we have her. She she may be the only first-person narrative of someone who lived in slavery in Canada where we can get a glimpse of her own experiences. And so she tells us herself in this narrative that she was the first colored girl brought into Canada and that when she came to Canada, there was nothing here but Indians and wild beasts. So she talks like that. And she also says that um, besides from Joseph Branch, she only ever knew one other Indian, using the terminology of Indian of the times, but she only knew one other Indian who owned slaves. So even by her own reckoning, because of course she knew many other slaves, and, and by that time, by 1856, she was living in a community with a lot of other uh, former slaves and fugitive slaves in what was called the Queen's Bush, sort of in that area north uh, of Waterloo. 
And um, and so she knew lots were the slaves and who they'd been owned by, but uh, there was only one other Indian that she knew of that, that had owned slaves. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Jane Mulkovich, who is an author, who's a historian, who's a lawyer, who has written about Sophia Pooley, who was a slave of Joseph Brandt. And the reason we're talking about this, it's in the context of the statues that are being taken down and names that are being power washed off buildings and everything else. And um, when I was, before having you on, uh, Jane, I, I actually, not that I doubted you, but I went and checked to see if there were other records of this, of this person and of Joseph Brandt holding slaves. There are. There are lots of other people. There are lots of other historians who talk about this. You are not standing alone as this one lone voice out in the wilderness saying this happened. It's a well-established thing that he was a slave owner. Yes. Yeah, so I... Go ahead. Yeah, and he was a slave owner. He was also... There's correspondence by him that I've read in the Ontario archives. He corresponded with other people in Upper Canada at the time about buying other slaves that he didn't end up buying, but he was... You know, there's correspondence about... uh, potential slaves that he would have purchased and there's reference to other people that uh, were in his household and and working for him there's also there's been many historians who've spun it different ways some people have said that he actually bought slaves in order to liberate them because there's also stories about him establishing former slaves and giving them land and property alongside the six nations on the grand river so um and even in sophia pooley's account she says herself she quotes joseph brandt as saying but i've adopted her as one of the family and so there's this argument that he treated former slaves or slaves as of the family and adopted rather than slavery. But at the end, just before he died, he did sell Sophia Pooley. So he didn't keep her to uh, to the end. He sold her to Samuel Hatt. And again, speaking of people whose uh, names and legacies abound, Samuel Hatt has a street named after him in Dundas, Hatt Street. Mm. And so, you know, that's another example of a, a local person who was a slave owner who had a street named after him. And there's nothing in Hamilton or in this area named after Sophia Pooley, but the, the people who were people of power and privilege and who owned slaves often have things named after them. See, now this is where this whole thing to me gets very confusing and requires a little bit of nuance that isn't always found. And quite frankly, on talk radio may not be the best venue. It's very difficult to do nuance and talk radio. But the immediate response from a lot of people, I'm thinking if they became aware of this story, would be to say, yeah, we can't be having anything, any statues, any streets, any buildings, any cities, any towns, any hospitals that would be honoring or celebrating someone who at one time or another was a slave owner, regardless of whether he was a nice slave owner or a mean slave owner. Just that description of their being precludes them from any of this kind of thing. You would probably agree that that is going to be the default position for a number of people. Well, sure, for some people, but I also think that even, in, you know, and without getting into all the details of all the other cases, but I think sometimes people are wanting to add to the history and not necessarily take it away. I don't know that the answer is always to take away the plaque or take away the, the legacy of the history, but we need to add to it. We need to add the untold parts of the stories. You know, there is a Joseph Grant Museum, and, and that needs to be added to about this more complicated legacy, and, and there are you know, we can add to it by telling more of Sophia Pooley's story and we can tell more of the untold history without just erasing and taking away the, the history that people already do know. So you would not advocate for saying, look, we, we just can't have a publicly run hospital named after someone who was a slave owner? 
I think I think it is more complicated than that. I, I think that naming things is a largely symbolic thing, and I think that we can. Uh, it's not that we should do nothing, but we have to have real substance. For instance, we have a provincial government right now that is threatening the planned uh, curriculum changes on Indigenous content. That the former provincial government was uh, scheduled to improve or enhance Indigenous education in schools, and the current government is, is rolling that back apparently. And so there's things like that that we're much better, we should be putting our focus and our efforts on, on how to improve education on some of these issues, rather than uh, just putting our heads in the sand and ignoring it. This is an important legacy. I I think that many of these things happened 200 years ago when the slave trade was abolished, when indigenous people were alienated from the land, and all of these things happened around the same time, and quite frankly, we're still in this post-colonial world where we're still trying to come to terms with all of that. We have modern-day racism that stems historically from a lot of these events that we still don't talk about very well and don't teach our kids about very well. Jane Malkovich, uh, is the book available? By, you've written about this. Is it a book? Is it an article? Is it available somewhere if somebody wanted to read it? Uh, there, there is a, a short story that was published as part of a collection by Seraphim Editions. The, the full book, I, I'm still hoping to publish one in the future. I give talks from time to time. For example, next January 30th, I think it is, I'm giving my next talk for the Brant Historical Society in Brantford. So I, I do give talks. And uh, yes, I am. I'm, I have it as a goal to, to make this into a, a full-length book. But there's, as you said, and as you researched yourself there's a number of things available online and and i hope that there's a thirst for knowledge out there that we can get this story out uh, and more widespread throughout ontario and throughout the schools in ontario jane i sincerely appreciate your time thanks for doing this today thanks for having me on the show you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml let us bring in our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHC. I got a couple things I want to get to with you today, but this one, I wasn't even going to talk to you about this, and I saw one of the all-time great, consp- not conspiracy, but ideas that made it out onto the internet today, onto Twitter and other places. I want to hear your thought on this, though, right? Because mm-hmm. we heard today that the Eric Carlson trade rumblings have begun to pick up again. We're heading towards training camp, and things mm-hmm. are about to get started. And inexplicably to me... The one team that has apparently popped into the mix here, at least reportedly, is the Vancouver Canucks, which makes no sense whatsoever. They're a horrible team. Why they would want an elite defenseman when they're going to finish near the bottom, it it doesn't make any sense at all. Right? So that makes no sense. And then all of a sudden, a few people put online, well, the reason they would do this is because they make this trade and then at the trade deadline, they turn around and they absolutely pillage the Toronto Maple Leafs for all their young farm system prospects to bring in Carlson once most of his salary has been paid and they can fit him under the salary cap for the playoff run. Bubba O'Neill, thoughts? I I, I don't see that happening at all. I mean, I, I think that is really, when you talk about conspiracy and <laughs> theories, like that, that is just like... That's using your imagination to the absolute maximum. I mean, Carlson actually even going to Vancouver to me seems like a stretch to me. Seems stupid. Uh, um, that that wouldn't just doesn't. I don't think that makes a lot of sense right now for him as a player. If that's the case, he might as well stay in Ottawa. I mean, because I think Ottawa, as it stands right now, is a better team with more talent overall. 
Um, Vancouver may have some upside coming on right now with some young kids, but uh, it, that may, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, if you're Vancouver, and, and, and yeah, making a making a run at the maybe, maybe joining the Leafs to make a run that makes that maybe makes some sense that Toronto may be interested interested in as they you know their weakest part of their game is probably their back line in terms of uh, you know volume guys as you know three as six guys six or seven guys, but. To, to take that route just seems long and mad and crazy to well, me. Well, if you're Vancouver and there is a chance that you could finish last overall and get the first overall draft pick and start a rapid rebuild of your team, and there's a good guy who is going to be going number one this year, so he's a, it's an impact player, why would you take on a defenseman for at least half of the year that could maybe bump you up to third or fourth worst and cost you that opportunity. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, but I thought it was a wonderful conspiracy because Ottawa will never trade Carlson to Toronto. There's, no, I, I mean, happen. maybe for Austin Matthews, but, <laughs> I mean, uh, Toronto's not doing that either. So, uh, anyway, I thought that was a really... My, my, f- only, my only thing is that maybe after, you know, guys like uh, Matt Nasland and the Sedins who have now retired Vancouver have a love-in with Sweden. Yeah, Maybe but they, Eric, need, they, they need a Swede. Eric Carlson will defect to Sweden if he's traded to Vancouver. <laughs> You're going to go from Ottawa from stinking the joint out to an even worse situation in Vancouver. Yeah, the only the only worst stop could be if they send him down to the AHL, which I don't B- think they can do. Binghamton, no. <laughs> Bingham, oh, that wouldn't that be fun for Eric Carlson? A winter in Binghamton, New York. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't see this happening. No. Anyway, let us move along. I couldn't help but well, the Blue Jays finished a series today with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, they won. They swept a guy who was pitching his first game for the Blue Jays. A rookie throws a no-hitter through six innings roughly before he finally gives up a hit. I, I went and looked online because Baltimore is just Baltimore is just a, an, a, an unmitigated disaster of unbelievable. They've won 37 games this year. They are 51 games out of first place with a month and a half to go in the schedule. I mean, it's a stunning, stunning... I think the number is something like 55 or 56 is the modern record for games behind. They're going to they're gonna hit 70 games out, Bubba, before they're done. So here's my question. It was only two years ago that the Baltimore Orioles were in the playoffs. They played against the Blue Jays. Edwin Encarnacion hit that home run, the walk-off yep. in, the, in the wild card. That's only two years ago. Now, and who did the Jays play after that? They played Texas, right? And then they yep. pl- went on... To K- or, and then Kansas City the year before. K- last place in the AL this year. Texas, uh, Baltimore, Kansas City, and the Jays right in front of them. Is it a good thing or a bad thing in baseball and in other sports, but baseball seems to be the one right now, that there can be such pendulous swings from good to bad and presumably then back to good for these teams? Is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing overall. I mean, and it's funny that you do name those teams. I mean, Kansas City are right behind Baltimore in terms of being just an awful franchise in terms of wins and losses right now. Texas not that far off, and and the Blue Jays have certainly fallen on hard times, and you know are looking to rebuild. You're right; it's it, it's unbelievable what's happened. But I think obviously the way up takes a much longer than time as we're going to see to actually fall down. Um, you can fall down pretty quick. Teams are going to pass you very quickly, especially in the American League East where you have Boston and New York who have done an excellent job of building their farm team. They made some really quick, smooth, especially New York, some really smooth moves to and rebuilt really, really quickly. Now, they also have the injection of the ability of spending a lot of money to patch up 
the rest of the roster with you know viable free agents, which I don't think Toronto are ready and prepared to do right now. Well, they can so. also do one other thing with that money, and people always forget this. Guys who are drafted in the high rounds get a certain amount of money and can hold out for more. And not every team is willing to pay those unproven prospects right. the money they want. The Yankees and the Red Sox can pay those guys, and if it doesn't pan out, well, too bad, so sad, where other teams are going to say, no, we're not going to do that. So they can rebuild. But you look at a team like Houston that not that long ago, five, six years ago, was where Baltimore is, and they won the World Series wins. last year. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it can be done. It is being done. I just wonder if, if it's better for baseball. I've always wondered if it's better for baseball if we've had good teams and bad teams, and every once in a while one pokes its head in the other neighborhood, but by and large you know who they're going to be. I, I, I think what's good for baseball, and this is, you know, some people don't like this, but I think it has proven itself time and time again that you're right. It is good for every once in a while for some of these teams to get a little, ooh, where'd they come from? You know, Minnesota <laughs> got into the playoffs last year. You know, like, how'd that happen? And, you know, uh, you know, and look what the Cardinals have done this year. Um, though I, I can't, you know, they're kind of a hard example because the Cardinals are generally a good team. Even the, the Cubs, you're like, whoa, they won the World Series. What is good for baseball is that the, the, the regular powerhouses like the Dodgers, the Boston Red Sox, and the Yankees make the playoffs. I know people get tired of these teams. People like to hate on these teams. But in terms of ratings, in terms of popularity, in terms of fan uh, interest in the sport, because remember, baseball is turned into a very uh, regional sport, that the sport does its best when those teams are involved. And you're talking about, too, uh, the best game player in the game, and Mike Trout, very, you know, basically being invisible mm-hmm. on a bad team. By the way, can you make that sound again? What sound? See, I'm a big believer in the dynasty teams, not yep. dynasty necessarily winning championships, but I agree when the Yankees are good, if you're a Yankees fan, that's terrific. If the Yankees are good, in order to have a great TV show, a great movie, a great anything, you must have a villain. And I go back to what the show Survivor is still on the air right now. Would the show Survivor have ever been what it became if in that very first season you did not have Richard Hatch, who was the villain of villains on, on reality TV? You need to have the person to hate. And that's what the New York Yankees for many people are, or the Boston Red Sox. You, if it's the Kansas City Royals, Texas Rangers, I hate to say it, Toronto Blue Jays, Minnesota Twins who are running away with things, who hates any of them? I mean, Texas hates Toronto, I understand, and vice versa. Yeah. But generally, who, the, you need good guys and bad guys. And Absolutely. so if the Yankees are there all the time, while people will hate that, I think that's helpful. I think it is for baseball, absolutely. You need, as you, you talked about, you know, villains, you need stars. This is what, this is how, you know, these sports, especially baseball, you know, uh, are surviving in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of peak interest in a sport that is, you know, fighting very, very hard to maintain its sort of level with especially America. I mean, there was a time that baseball was America's game. Well, that has been easily replaced, you know, by the National Football League. And like I said, baseball was always a national sport. 
in the United States, but it has now turned into a very, very regional spot where, you know, there are many parts of the United States where baseball is just not a big deal. All right. Piece uh, by the Associated Press today, and I saw this one and I thought, you know, I don't know if I agree, but it's a fascinating talking point. They are making the case that Tiger Woods right now, five years out from his last major, how many years from his last major? A lot of years. Ten years from his last major, probably five years from his last, whatever it is. They are arguing that Tiger Woods right now is bigger than Tiger Woods ever was when he was at the peak of his game as far as fan interest, fan support, fan love, fan attention. Agree or disagree? Agree. Uh, People love the comeback story. Uh, they really, really do. And Tiger's playing abilities, uh, you know, obviously at that time during his decade of domination, are, I mean, that cannot be touched by what he's, you know, he's become right now. And he's still a pretty good golfer out there and can compete with the, you know, as we're seeing, he can compete with the world's best. And at some point is going to win a, a tournament. I don't know if it's going to be a major or whatever, but he's going to win something. Um, but as Tiger got more popular and he began to dominate, just like we talked about the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox and teams that seem to be end up in the World Series on a regular basis, there becomes that villain. There becomes that, I'm tired of Tiger. I'm tired of his domination. Who's going to knock him off? Why is everyone afraid of him? But now, after all he's gone through, and of course the injuries are a major factor, but let's not forget, this guy's personal life was turned upside down. Lost his wife. Um, th- this, you know, reported sexual abuse, uh, sexual um, addiction issues. The drinking. The reliance on prescription drugs. I mean, I can't think of a athlete that actually was as high as he was that sunk to where as low as he was. I mean, let's be honest. It, it wasn't all that long ago where Tiger Woods was the butt. Of, of many jokes on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah, you just described a 1970s heavy metal rock star. <laughs> you know what I mean? His lo- he was at an all-time low. And now to see him injury, you know, injury-free, healthy, that whatever that back, you, I mean, whoever did that back surgery, if he continues like this, that whoever that surgeon was is going to end up being a very popular Well, he'll man. be like the, ne- the next Dr. James Andrews, the guy who does all the elbow surgeries for baseball players. Absolutely, absolutely, because, I mean, he, I mean, let's be, Tiger could barely walk. I mean, and and he said he could barely, you know, watch a, a soccer game with his kids. So, yeah, so he has this, he, he, you're right, I think, absolutely about the fact that at a certain point when he's winning all the time, it wasn't just that he was winning, I don't think, that people grew tired of, to be honest, although maybe some did. There was also, I think, a sense that he had become kind of a scowling, not fun in any way. You're right. Um, whatever. Too and, obsessed with winning. Well, and now he comes back and you see... Tiger Woods, who's laughing on the golf, not all the time, not, yeah. not, he's not, you know, Mr. Chuckles, but he's still, you know, you'll see the odd smile. He'll do something and he'll, he'll react with something beyond just like a glare of death at the hole. I, I, that to me, see, I wonder if that, how much that has something to do with it too, that people are embracing the fact that he actually looks more like a human being now. He does, and I agree with you. He does look like he's having a good time out there. I think he, you know, he's talked about in his press conference how pleased and happy and you know he is to be out there competing with the world's best, and you know, talks about how much he missed it. I mean, this guy didn't golf for two years. 
I mean, we forget that. Two state, straight years of not even competing in major championships where, you know, the and let I mean, I can be remiss without saying what it's doing to television ratings. Well, of course. Everyone's happy. That point, I also have not competed for two years in a major championship and no one is cheering for me on the course. So I just want to clarify, just yeah. not playing for two years does not make you beloved. You know, let me tell you something what really... <laughs> Which really, and this is why when you asked me that question, I was so quick to answer. When he, and we'd seen this obviously with the huge crowds that he always attracts, you know, poor uh, Kapka won the PGA Championship and no one even remembers him. I mean, by the time they handed up the trophy, half of the, of, of the, of the um, attendance had cleared out. Everyone was there to see Tiger. But if you remember correctly, and for those that are golf fans will remember, and I know maybe people who are watching highlights might have seen this shot. After he made that incredible birdie on 18 to close out his tournament, and he was walking to the clubhouse to go sign his card, he had to walk over this sort of um, bridge. bridge over. And they showed this wide shot. of. Remember, where he was was behind the hole. There were... Hundreds, I guess, thousands of fans at oh, this tournament. There were at least twenty thousand people in that crowd at that yeah, moment. But they, but they weren't looking at the golf course. They weren't looking at the hole. They all turned around to to salute Tiger as he walked over this bridge. And I, th- I look at that shot and I'm like, the the loving is back. Like it, it was incredible to me. All of them, but turning away from the golf course to either wave or salute or clap or yell Tiger, or whatever they, they chose to do. And, and again, some, you know, in the past, he would have looked at that and maybe smiled or whatever the case was, but this time he acknowledged, the, you, know, he, you know, he gave multiple acknowledgments to the crowd. And as he said, he, he's, he's, I don't want to say he wasn't human before, but we're seeing a much more, because of his failures, we're seeing, hum, we're seeing that human side of Tiger that maybe we might not have ever seen for the better part of you know, 15, 10 to 15 years. The way that tournament was going, I kind of expected the guy from James Bond, the, the Jaws, Richard Keel, to show up like he did in Happy Gilmore and go after Brooks Kepka and you know, <laughs> intimidate the guy out there. Nobody wanted Brooks Kepka. Everybody wanted Tiger Woods to win. But it is, it's an interesting discussion about is he bigger now? Is Tiger Woods bigger now? than he was when he was winning. It's, you know what, discuss among yourselves. It's a fascinating topic about whether or not... Sorry, Scott. It, to me, if, he, if and when he wins, we can officially say it is the biggest comeback in sports. I can't think of anyone that sunk lower than him. That was, you know, as world... I mean, remember, and look, Tiger's a worldwide figure. How's Mike Tyson's shape these days? I mean... See that no. one I'd like to see too. I'm not really because Tiger Woods doesn't get punched in the head when he's in his in his sport. I, I wouldn't mind seeing Mike Tyson make a comeback. See what he could do. No. I, I think he he looks a little rotund these days. I, I don't no. know that he'd be um, the Mike Tyson we remember. But I think he's enjoying his life. You know, right he now. and George Foreman could have a go. Have an old timers <laughs> boxing league. You know, but even what George Foreman did there was you know it actually that was pretty was, impressive. That was very very impressive at his advanced age to do what he did. But nothing like this. Not no one at no one went. This guy, I mean, it was awful. I mean, think about how it bad, was bad. it was for Tiger. Hey, as I let you go, uh, let me wish you and yours a very, very merry, a very happy, a very joyous National Tooth Fairy Day, which today oh. is National Tooth Fairy Day. So how you plan to celebrate that is entirely up to you, but just make sure that, uh, that you do something to honor the great lady 
before the day is out. Bob O'Neill from CHCH, you can. What's that? Who's making these days? I, I, you know what? Wait till you see what tomorrow is. <laughs> Tune in tomorrow. Tomorrow's a classy one. Bob O'Neill, you can catch him tonight at 11 o'clock doing weather and sports on CHCH. Always appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.